Good evening and welcome to our Bible study. Uh, thank God for this technology that enables us to share together on the phone and on the internet and so many ways. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, we've had bad weather in our area and for the last two Sundays we've not been able to physically meet. So we thank God we can have phone church. But uh, tonight we're continuing in our Bible study series that we began a while ago entitled Out of Abundant Out of Bondage into Abundance. That's out of bondage into abundance. And if you're interested, the notes and the recordings of each one of these are available on our website at new life ministries.org and would encourage you to download those notes so you can follow along. If you are following in the notes, we are presently in part two, uh, the Passover, and we've come to page 14. Before we begin tonight, I just I want to say something in general. You know, the Bible talks about the joy of salvation. The psalmist prayed, Lord, Create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. I'll tell you, the world is getting crazier by the day. And we hear so many things happening in the world that are distressing and disturbing. And if you're not careful, it can really get you down and you start to... Fix your eyes just on the things that are happening around you. It it can be very negative. But, you know, the Bible tells us that God has given us a great salvation. He didn't just save us from hell. He didn't just save us out of our sins. But as we're going to keep learning as we move forward in this Bible study, this is a great, a grand, a glorious salvation. And... We've been emphasizing this from the beginning, and it's even in the title. It's not just what he brought us out of, it's what he wants to bring us into. So, he brought the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, but it was for a greater purpose to take them in to a promised land, into a land flowing with milk and honey, into a place where God was going to manifest his care his love, and his goodness for each one of them. And likewise, we are drawing the parallel between the Old Testament and the New. God has brought us out of darkness, out of sin, out of the bondage of selfishness and evil into the abundance of his promises, the abundant, overflowing life that Jesus talked about when he was here on the earth. And this section that we've now come to is especially important. It may actually be the most important part of this whole seven-part series that we're doing. The importance of the Passover. And we're going through this very carefully, very slowly, and very deliberately because... It is so important and so critical to our understanding and our appreciation of our whole salvation. And as we emphasized last time, 
The children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, and he told him certain things. That he had heard their groaning, he had seen their misery, because of the promises that he had made to Abraham and the fathers, he was now going to come down and rescue them and take them out of that place. With a mighty outstretched arm, with great signs and wonders, God promised he was going to bring them out of there and then take them into a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And we saw last time one of the four main reasons why God was taking them out of slavery, and this is the same reason why he wants to take us out of every bondage to sin, every addiction, every enslaving thing that might come upon humankind, God wanted to set them free so that they could serve him. This is very, very important. God wanted them free so they could serve him. And God wants you and me free from every bondage, from every sin, from every oppression, from every negative influence. He wants us free indeed, but there's a catch, if I can use that word. There is a condition. He wants to set us free, not so we can run footloose and wild and do our own thing. He sets us free so that we can become slaves of God, slaves of righteousness, slaves, and that's the word that's used in the New Testament, slaves of God, so that we can serve Him. Now, God is not a cruel taskmaster like Pharaoh. God is a good God, and as we're seeing, He sacrificed the ultimate sacrifice. He gave His own Son to set us free, so that we can now serve Him. And if you want to use the term love slave, I like that word, He's he's now wanting to set us free so we can become His love slaves. We serve Him because we want to, not because He's cracking a whip, not because He's oppressing us and making us miserable the way Pharaoh did the children of Israel for 400 years in Egypt, but Because He loves us, we now willingly come, surrender to Him, and say, Lord, here I am. I have come to do Your will. So, He sets us free to serve Him. And we finished last time looking more carefully at what really happened on that Passover night. After nine plagues the children of Israel were still slaves. All of the signs and wonders and miraculous plagues that God brought upon Egypt, it would temporarily soften Pharaoh's heart, but then he would harden his heart again and refuse to let them go. But in the tenth and final plague, God sent his destroying angel over Egypt, and that angel went house by house, And any house that did not have the blood of the Passover lamb uh, placed upon the doorway, 
the firstborn of every living thing in that house was killed. From the firstborn son to the firstborn cow to whatever firstborn uh, creature was in that household, it was smitten and put to death on that Passover night. And that's where the festival gets its name, Passover. And God told them, when I come to a house, I'm looking for one thing. He wasn't looking to see how good they were, how righteous, how holy, or anything. He said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Note those words carefully. When I see the blood... I will pass over you. They were told to take an innocent lamb, put it to death, take its blood, and paint it over their doorway for God to see when he passed through Egypt. And every Israelite home that had that blood of the lamb over the doorway was spared from God's wrath and judgment. And we saw last time that God was not only judging Pharaoh and Egypt, he was judging the gods of Egypt. This was a, a powerful judgment that God was bringing upon this whole land, upon its leaders, and even upon its gods. And the wrath of God, the judgment of God, only passed over those homes that were under the blood. This is so important for us to get. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, we are told in 1 Corinthians 5. We looked at those verses last time. What does that mean? Why is Jesus called our Passover lamb? Well, likewise, there's only one reason for God's wrath, judgment, and destruction to pass over you or me or anyone else. It's not because we're good people. It's not because we're clever. It's not because we go to church. That's good. Go to church, study the Bible, join us for Bible study. All those things are good. That's not why God passes over us. He says there's only one reason why he will pass over anyone. That's when I see the blood. I will pass over you. In the Old Testament, it was the blood of lambs. In the New Covenant, it's when God saw the blood of His own Son, His own perfect Passover lamb. That is the only reason, my friend, why you and I have been spared the hottest fires in hell. It's not because of any good thing we did. It's not even because of our great faith or our great repentance. That's important, and we're going to talk about faith and repentance. But ultimately, it's because of the blood of the Passover. And you know, I wish more preachers would talk about Jesus Christ, the Passover Lamb. Why? God has passed over us, and why we have been spared from his wrath and judgment and destruction. It's only because of the blood of Jesus Christ, for no other reason that God has spared us. And you know, that's what causes me 
to appreciate my salvation more and more with each passing day, week, month, and year. And I've completed about 40 years now since I first understood this great good news that Jesus died in my place, His blood was shed so that God would pass over my life. And in the midst of all the craziness that's going on in the world, we can rejoice because we have a Savior. We have already been rescued out of this fallen, destroyed world by sin and the devil and darkness. We've already been rescued through the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Praise God for the blood of the Lamb. When John the Baptist saw him, he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in the book of Revelation, the final book in the Bible, the the book that talks about end times and the great tribulation and all those things, Jesus Christ is referred to as the Lamb of God 19 times in the book of Revelation. More than any other title, he is referred to in the last book as God's Lamb. And in eternity, multitudes will be gathered around the throne, worshiping him day and night, saying, What? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For our sins. Now, it'd be perfectly right and just to say, Worthy is the Lord, worthy is the great God, worthy is the Alpha and Omega. But no, the Word of God is very specific here because this is an aspect of our salvation that God really wants to give us a revelation about. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How? through his own blood. How did we get saved? When God saw the blood of his own Son. And that's why in Revelation twelve eleven it says they overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Praise God for the blood of of the Lamb. Now, continuing on tonight, if you're following in the notes, we've come to page 14, part D here. And it says the Israelites needed two essential things in order to escape Egypt. Through this provision that God made, the Passover Lamb and through the blood of the Lamb, there were two things that the Israelites needed to do. They needed faith, and they needed obedience. Underline, put in bold capital letters, those two words. Faith and obedience. And really, you know, it's not complicated. The whole Bible can be summarized quite simply. What God is really looking for in your life and mine is these two things. Faith and 
obedience. You can't have one without the other because of its real faith, it leads to real obedience. And a while back, we talked about the picture of Israel going into the promised land as representing entering God's rest. And we referred to Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, which we will probably come back to again at some point, because in those chapters, the writer of Hebrews says, there still remains a rest for us to enter into. So this isn't just an Old Testament story. Old Testament was a picture of the reality that God now wants us to experience. He's called us to enter into his rest. And we saw that there were two reasons given in Hebrews 3 and 4 why the Israelites failed to enter God's rest. It wasn't because of the giants. It wasn't because of the great distance they had to travel. It wasn't because of Pharaoh. It wasn't because of the seven nations that occupied Canaan. It wasn't because of the walls of Jericho or any other physical obstacle or any enemy. The only two reasons that are given for their failure to enter into God's rest, i.e., into the promised land, was unbelief and disobedience. Those are the opposites of what we're talking about. Faith and obedience. They failed because of unbelief and disobedience. And the only way you and I can fail is the same way. It's not because of giants, not because of there's so many demons, not because of ISIS or ISIL or uh, whatever the names of all these crazy groups, Al-Qaeda, um, I can't even remember all their names now. Doesn't matter. What? Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab, and I, I don't care what their names are. There are lots of evil things. None of those are going to be good reasons for us not entering the promised land. It's not going to be, but God, there were so many challenges in my life. I had so many problems, and God, you know, you know about my kids and my job and my financial troubles, and God's going to say, none of those kept you out. Two things, and only two things, can keep you from entering my rest, from entering into my kingdom. Faith and obedience. What's the old hymn say? Trust and obey, for there's no other way. Man, they got that right. Trust and obey. And I, I could preach for hours on those two things. And really, if you boil it down, that's what we preach about Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We use different texts. We use a little bit different wording. But basically, it's the same message over and over and over. Trust in God and then do what He's telling you to do. Now, let's talk specifically about each one of these just a little bit. In Hebrews chapter 11... We have the list of all the heroes of faith, and one of them in that list is Moses. 
And there's a very interesting and pertinent scripture there for what we're studying right now. Hebrews 11, verse 28. It says, By faith he, that's Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith he kept the Passover. And by extension, it talks about the firstborn of all the Israelites being spared. They had to have faith. Faith that by keeping the Passover they were going to be saved. The blood of the slain Passover lamb, and we learned about this last time in Exodus 12, it had to be personally applied to the door of every house. Just because your next door neighbor had blood over his door didn't spare you. The blood covered one entire household. There was a lamb for every household. Blood had to be applied over each and every door. The message is very clear. Jesus has already shed his blood. The Passover lamb has already been slain. We can't kill him again. He already went to the cross. His precious blood has already been shed. But the question now is, have you applied that blood to the doorposts of your own life? Are you personally putting your faith in the blood of Jesus to save you from your sins, from hell, from God's wrath, and from God's destruction? And if you question people on this, you'll find out very quickly whether or not they really have faith in the blood of Jesus or faith maybe in a religion. Oh, well, you know, I've been a member of such and such a church for 53 years. And, you know, my parents and my grandparents, they were all Methodists. They were all Catholics. They were all this, that, or the other. No, that's not what we're talking about. Have you personally applied the blood of the Passover lamb to your own heart, to your own life. It says by faith they had to keep the Passover. And likewise, by faith we have to appropriate what Jesus has already accomplished for us. The Bible says he's already died for the sins of the whole world. But that doesn't mean the whole world is saved. The provision has been made for the whole world. But the question now is, who will personally receive that precious blood sacrifice that was made on Calvary for your sins? The second point, and we're going to bounce back and forth here, the second point we mentioned, the children of Israel, and you and I as well, we need obedience. Real faith produces real obedience. 
Now suppose you were an Israelite, and you heard Moses explaining all of the details concerning the celebration of the Passover. And you heard him say, now each household, take a lamb, kill the lamb, apply the blood to the door, eat the lamb, and we're going to talk about some of those specifics. But if you read Exodus 12, there's a long list of specific instructions that were given to each and every Israelite, particularly to the heads of the households. So suppose, you know, Mr. Smith, he hears all that and he says, Moses, I believe everything you're saying. I really have faith in you. You're a great preacher. You're a great leader. And then he does nothing. Is that real faith? Well, James tells us it's dead faith. If you claim to have faith and don't act according to that faith, it's dead faith. It's vain, empty, meaningless faith. So faith that does not produce obedience is not real faith. So the Israelites who had faith to keep the Passover, they also had to obey all of these specific instructions. They had to take a lamb. They had to kill the lamb. It had to be a perfect lamb without blemish. They had to get rid of all the leaven and all the yeast from their homes. They had to eat the lamb in a very specific way. And finally, after giving this long list of detailed instructions in Exodus 12, we find in verse 24 these words. Exodus 12, 24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. Underline those three words. Obey these instructions. So they needed faith to keep the Passover, but they also had to obey specific instructions that God was giving to them through Moses. It's really no different for you and me as New Testament believers, as Christians. In the exact same way, our salvation is secured through faith and, yes, through obedience. We are called upon to personally Doesn't matter what mom or dad or grandpa or grandma believes. We are called upon to personally repent and believe the gospel. When we make that personal decision to receive Christ, to believe that his blood was shed for my sins, it's just like that Old Testament Israelite taking the blood and painting it over his doorway. We are now personally appropriating and applying the blood of Jesus to our own life. And these are well-known verses, but I think we need to study them a little more carefully here. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. 
often preached in evangelistic campaigns. They're found on numerous gospel tracts and other literature. But follow the words carefully. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. First of all, this is a conditional statement. It begins with the word if. So, there's a condition that must be met in the individual's life in order for salvation to take place. What is it? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then, and I'm adding these words, only then will you be saved. You know, I used to hear a false gospel preached quite often. It went something like this, and these aren't even biblical words, accept Jesus as your Savior. Okay? Accept Jesus as your Savior, and then later on, you can make Him Lord. You know, that'll come gradually. Right now, just accept Him as Savior, and little by little, you can start to obey Him, and eventually, He'll become Lord of your life. Is that what Paul said here? No. The very starting point of salvation is when you confess with your mouth, Jesus is what? Lord. Not Savior. Jesus is Lord of my life and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, if you believe God raised him from the dead, then obviously you know about him dying on the cross for you, shedding his blood for you. And again, by faith, we're applying that blood to our sin-stained heart so that we can be saved. It is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. We don't have time to go into the depth of this tonight, but it's important to note the two most important parts of our life that are involved in salvation are the heart and the mouth. The heart and the mouth. Believe with the heart and then confess with the mouth. Confession is the very first act of obedience. I am opening my mouth and I am now declaring Jesus is my Lord. Well, what does that imply? If He's Lord, 
then I'm going to start obeying him. If he's Lord, then I must do whatever he's telling me to do. And again, the very first thing we can do is open our mouth and begin to confess, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, Jesus is my Lord now. What does it say in Revelation 12:11? They overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For some reason, these two things always go hand in hand. Believing in the blood of Jesus and what Jesus did and then confessing it with my mouth. Faith that leads to obedience. I love this next verse. And we could list many, many verses about the importance of obedience. But I think this one will suffice. It's also found in the book of Romans, the first chapter. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. This idea of well, I'm going to believe in Jesus now, and then later on my obedience is going to kick in. That was alien to the Apostle Paul. From the very beginning of his letter to the Romans, he's emphasizing faith and obedience. Faith and obedience. Note this verse. Through him, that's through Christ, and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles, to the obedience that comes from faith. Underline that whole last phrase, obedience that comes from faith. You can't have one without the other. Real faith produces obedience, and you and I are never truly going to obey God from the heart if we don't first trust in Him, and specifically trust in His Passover, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Now we come to another very important point about the Passover Lamb. In Exodus 12, it was emphasized that the Lamb that each household was to take as its sacrificial lamb, it had to be a perfect sacrifice without spot or blemish. And turning our attention back to Exodus 12, let's look at verses 3 and 5. Exodus 12, 3 and 5. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats." God was very specific here. When you choose the lamb that you're going to use for your Passover, make sure it has 
no blemish, no spot, no defect. And so each lamb, each year, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. They kept repeating this over and over and over. Has to be a lamb without blemish. Has to be a lamb without defect. Has to be a spotless, perfect sacrifice. Well, all of this was leading up to the perfect Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who would ultimately come into the world and replace all of those Old Testament lambs, he being God's perfect Passover lamb. Jesus fulfilled in every way the Old Testament type of the Passover lamb as written in Exodus 12. Look in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. Remember, redemption means to buy back. You weren't bought back with silver or gold. Those are perishable things. From the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Surely, as Peter wrote these words, he was thinking about the Old Testament Passover lamb and how Jesus was now the perfect fulfillment in every way of that Passover lamb. And through his blood, we have been redeemed, bought out of our empty, vain way of life, handed down to us, not from our fathers or grandfathers, but from Adam, all the way back to our first forefathers. Redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And you know, <clears throat> it also states there in Exodus 12 that they had to examine the lamb. For four days they were supposed to check out this lamb and make sure that it didn't have any faults, any blemishes, any defects. Likewise, when Jesus came into the world, he was examined by everyone. And everyone who examined him could not find any fault in him. Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, was examined by everyone, and no one could find fault in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says... He had no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin. 1 John 3.5 says in him is no sin. He was the perfect, holy, sinless 
Lamb of God, and that is why he could become our Passover. There is no other sacrifice acceptable for man's deliverance from sin. Only, and I'm quoting from Revelation 13, verse 8, the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Only that perfect Lamb serves as the perfect sacrifice, capable and acceptable for our deliverance from sin. In Hebrews 7, verses 25 and 26, it says of Jesus, and I'm quoting, He is able to save completely. King James says, Save to the uttermost. He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Hallelujah to the Lamb. I am so happy to report tonight, He is able to save us completely, uttermost, to the end, from everything. He is able to completely save us. Why? Because He is holy, blameless, pure. He was that Lamb without defect who shed His blood on the cross for each one of us. Now, one more, perhaps two more important points we'll have time to examine tonight about the Passover. And here again, we turn our attention back to the Old Testament story in Exodus 12. And I would encourage you to keep reading Exodus 12. And note, every detail there is significant. Every detail. In Exodus 12, 6, and I'm reading from the King James, it says, The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Referring to the Lamb. The entire congregation of Israel had to be involved in the slaughter of these lambs. Why is that important? It was signifying that they were all guilty of the death of these lambs. It wasn't just one person or a few people. God wanted all of Israel to be involved in killing these lambs because all of Israel was guilty of the blood that these innocent lambs were shedding on their behalf. The picture is very powerful, and it points us again right to the New Testament to understanding what really happened on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was dying for the sins of the whole world. Well, what does that mean? It means the whole world was guilty. 
And in Romans 3, Paul is very clear there that the entire world, the entire human race, stands guilty before God. Every man, woman, and child has been declared guilty of sin, and by extension, guilty of the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Romans 3, we'll read verse 19 and then verse 23. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth, underline those words, every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable. King James says guilty. The whole world guilty to God. Why? Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of the Israelites were in a sense guilty of the shedding of blood of those innocent little lambs, and likewise, every human being is guilty of shedding the blood of Jesus. I referred to this verse earlier, but now turn to it. 1 John 2, verse 2. It says, He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. His one death, His blood was shed once, and it covers the sins of the entire human race. However, as we mentioned earlier, that doesn't mean the whole world is saved. They must now appropriate that atoning sacrifice through faith and through obedience. They must repent and believe the good news of Jesus in order for their sins to be truly saved. All right. The whole world was guilty of sin signified by the whole assembly of Israel killing those lambs. Let's look at one more point and we'll conclude here for this session. In Exodus 12, the children of Israel were given some other specific instructions, not just concerning the blood of this lamb, but they actually had to eat the lamb also. They had to roast it, and they had to eat it. And God gave them specific instructions about how to eat the lamb. They had to eat the whole lamb. Every part of it they were to eat, and they were to eat it with bitter herbs, and this is very important, and this is seen even in the 
New Testament passage where Paul connects these two and tells us that Christ is our Passover lamb, they had to get rid of all yeast from their houses. There could be no leaven in their house. And in Exodus 12, we'll read verse 8, and then verses 15 down to verse 20. Exodus 12, starting with verse 8. That same night, they, that's the Israelites, are to eat the meat, the meat of the lamb, roasted over fire, along with bitter herbs, and bread made without yeast. They had to eat the lamb, the meat had to be roasted with fire, they had to eat it with bitter herbs, and bread with no leaven, bread with no yeast. Verse 15, For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. For whoever eats anything with yeast in it, from the first day through the seventh, must be cut off from Israel. Verse 17, celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. That's where it gets its name. No leaven, no yeast. Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Verse 19, for seven days... No yeast is to be found in your houses. Whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Whether he is an alien or native-born, eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Now, we talked about the need for them to obey all of these instructions If they disobeyed this one instruction and said, you know what, I don't like unleavened bread. I'm going to get some bread with yeast in it because it tastes better. They would be cut off from Israel. They have no salvation if they disobeyed just in that one instruction. And we're going to talk a little bit more in just a moment about yeast. But let's first talk about these bitter herbs. Why did God specify he wanted them to eat this lamb meat with bitter herbs? Well, several things definitely come to mind. This was to be an annual reminder of the bitter experience that God delivered them from in Egypt. It was to remind them of that bitter life of bondage that they were now coming out of. It also, I believe, signifies the need for deep remorse, sincere repentance, and godly sin 
uh, a godly sorrow over our sin when we're partaking of Christ, our Passover Lamb. In 2 Corinthians 7, there's a very interesting passage about repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. Underline that. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. What does that mean? We talked about this last time. We come to a place where we're sick and tired of our old life. We don't don't want it anymore. We're sorry for our sins. We're, We're tired of our old way of life. We realize that we've grieved the heart of God with our rebellion, with our selfishness, with our lies, with all the other sins, and it produces a godly remorse, a bitter sorrow in our hearts. Man, what a sinner I've been. What terrible things I've done in my life. Paul says that's a necessary ingredient to salvation. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You know, there are two kinds of sorrow. There's a worldly sorrow, sorrow, and quite frankly, it often comes when somebody gets caught (laughs) doing something wrong. Oh, they can shed big tears. But it's not godly sorrow. It's just sorrow of the world. That doesn't produce salvation. It just brings death. Verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done at every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. In other words, When godly sorrow comes upon a sinner, they mean business with God. They're serious. There's an earnestness. There's there's an honesty, a sincerity, a a depth of reality to their repentance. I want to change. I'm not just playing games here. I want to truly change. When God sees that kind of an attitude... That brings true repentance that leads to salvation. The Passover celebration, and we're going to study more about this later, it was to be an annual festival. And it was to be an annual reminder to the Israelites, to their children, to their grandchildren, and to all of the generations to come, an annual reminder of their deliverance from the bitter bondage of Egypt. And likewise, you and I should never forget where God has brought us from. It's good for us to pause from time to time and just remember where we were 
before Jesus rescued us. It wasn't a sweet life. It was a bitter one. It was bitter bondage. And that's why every year they ate this lamb with bitter herbs. Now, finally, and here's where we'll conclude, they were not allowed to have any yeast, no leaven in their homes throughout this whole seven-day feast. Leaven is something invisible. Those of you who have baked bread, you understand, you mix a little bit of leaven in with the dough, and miraculously, the dough begins to swell. It begins to rise up. And that yeast is actually a living organism that is causing the bread to rise because of a process called fermentation. Little bubbles of carbon dioxide gas are being produced inside the dough, and it makes it bubble up, makes it fluff up. It causes it to rise. But yeast here is representing something hidden, but it's something that works through the whole dough in a very negative way. It represents hypocrisy. It represents hidden sin. And we'll see when we turn again to 1 Corinthians 5 in the New Testament, Paul explains to us what this leaven represents for you and for me, and why if we're going to keep the Passover feast with Christ, we also need to get rid of all the leaven. We need to get rid of all the yeast. Now, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. It says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Notice that. Paul is obviously thinking about the Passover, Exodus 12, getting rid of all the yeast from the house, and then celebrating the feast with the sacrifice of this perfect, innocent lamb. But he's telling Christians in Corinth, we need to get rid of our yeast. Get rid of the old yeast, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. What in the world is this yeast? Well, he explains it in the next verse. Verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast, keep the festival, not with the old yeast. What's the old yeast? He tells us, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast. Well, what's this unleavened bread? What's the bread without yeast? It's the bread of sincerity and truth. Not hard to understand. If you're going to come to Jesus, and you're going to make him your Passover lamb, there's one condition. 
get rid of all the yeast, get rid of all the malice, all the wickedness, all the hidden sin, and come to Him with sincerity and with truth. For me, the leaven or the yeast represents hypocrisy and hidden sin. Coming to Christ with unleavened bread means I'm open, I'm honest, I'm sincere, I'm not covering up anything, there's no deceit, there's no trickery, I'm just coming to Him with an open heart, repenting of all my sins, and embracing the cross. By the way, there's a very interesting note that we can make here in closing, referring again to this verse 8 in 1 Corinthians 5. The bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. That word sincerity comes from a Greek word, and this is in your notes, I won't bore you with the Greek word, which literally means to be judged by the sun's rays, to be tested as genuine, pure, or clear. That's amazing. Judged by the sun's rays. What does it mean? Everything out in the open. Everything exposed to the light. Everything is now being contacted and judged by the light of the sun. Everything being tested as genuine, pure, or clear. So, again, coming to Jesus with unleavened bread means we're coming with a genuine, pure heart. No hidden agendas, no hidden sin, no unconfessed sin, pure, genuine, no hypocrisy. We're coming to Him in truth. Let me read a scripture that just goes right along with this. 1 John 1, verses 6 to 10. 1 John 6 to 10. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, that's with Jesus, if we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, remember, sincerity means walking in the light, if we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. You know, you can only hide things and cover things over in the darkness. Everything is exposed by light. That's how the Bible defines light. It exposes everything. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Whoa! Stop right there! 
both of these sentences, verse 6 and verse 7, and actually, as we continue, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10, all begin with the same word, if. It's a condition. Five conditions are listed here. If we claim to have fellowship with him, but we're still walking in darkness, we lie. And we do not live by the truth. Remember, unleavened bread is bread of sincerity and truth. Verse 7, if we walk in the light, exposed to the sun rays as he is in the light, then and only then, and I'm adding those words, we have fellowship with one another, and then and only then will the blood of Jesus, his son, purify us from all sin. John does not say, if you walk in darkness, you have a hidden life, you're covering over sin, you're a hypocrite, you have a dark side to you that no one knows about, John does not say the blood of Jesus washes all those sins away. He does not say that. He says if you come to the light, then the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. Verse 8 again begins with the word if. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if, and here's the key, if we confess our sins. That's what it means to come to the light. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, another condition. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. This, to me, is a very important part of this whole teaching on the Passover. It required truthfulness. It required openness. It required sincerity. No leaven. No hidden sin. No hypocrisy. And lest we forget what God thinks about hypocrites, read about them in the Gospels. Oh my! Jesus was kind and merciful to tax cheats, to adulterers, to thieves, to demon-possessed people. But man, look at how he speaks to the hypocrites. You brood of snakes. Oh my. He was not very kind to the hypocrites. Why? Because they're not sincere. God wants us to come out of darkness into his marvelous light where all of our sins, 
All of our dark past is exposed and as the word means, judged by the sun's rays. And then we're confessing those things, we're repenting and turning away from those things, and we're embracing Jesus, our Passover lamb. The lamb had to be eaten, it had to be eaten with bitter herbs, and there couldn't be any yeast, no leaven in the house. Likewise, we come to Jesus with a sincere heart, <clears throat> with a genuine repentance, with godly sorrow for all of our past sins, confessing before Him all of our sins so that we can be forgiven, cleansed, and the power of the blood of Jesus can work mightily in our lives. Let's pray tonight and let's thank God for the Passover lamb that God has provided for each one of us. Through the blood of Jesus Christ and through nothing else, all of our sins have been atoned for, all of our sins have been forgiven, there is total, uttermost salvation because of what Jesus has already done for us on the cross. Father, we thank you tonight for the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who was sacrificed on the cross of Calvary for the sins of the whole world. And now, Lord, each one of us, individually, by faith, we apply that blood to our hearts and to our lives. And we come to you in sincerity and truth, uncovering, exposing, and confessing before your light, O God, all of our sins and all of our sinfulness. For God, you know who we are. You know our hearts. You know all of our past. We can hide nothing from you. And so we bring it all before you, looking to you for the powerful cleansing blood of Jesus Christ to redeem us from our vain way of life, to deliver us from the bondage of Egypt, and to set us free so that we can serve you. God bless each and every one participating in this Bible study tonight. I pray that it would be more than a history lesson. It would be more than a Bible study. But we might truly experience liberation, deliverance from every bondage that might prevent us from serving you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, we praise you tonight for so great a salvation in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.